This is Farmland, coming up. Are Ireland's rural indigenous industries being unfairly targeted for the common good of meeting the country's climate change obligations? Independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice and Eamon Ryan, the leader of the Green Party, are here to debate Ireland's decarbonisation plans. And as attention turns to the next drying off period, Tom O'Dwyer, the head of Dairy Knowledge Transfer at Chagask Moorpark, is here to offer advice on how to get the best outcomes. But first, last week, Bordnamona announced plans to cease peat harvesting by 2025. That's five years ahead of its initial 2030 deadline, and the move will result in more than 400 job losses. The company now aims to significantly increase its biomass supply at its Midland power stations. But where will this biomass come from? Our reporter, Sylvester Phelan, caught up with Professor John Sweeney, a leading climatologist at Maynooth University, and he spoke to a Meath farmer and contractor who has been making efforts to grow willow. Following last week's announcement by Board Namona to cease harvesting peat by 2025, Five years earlier than expected, Professor John Sweeney at NUI Minute gave his reaction to the move. I think the fact that uh, the closing date is brought forward to 2025 is, is very productive, it's very useful and, and we have to welcome it. It reflects uh, an awareness uh, and a recognition of the fact that we can't continue to burn peat the way we have. Um, society simply won't stand for uh, burning our carbon store and paying 100 million a euro, euros a year subsidy to do that. So I think Born and Mona are acting very sensibly here and recognising that the, the future lies in using the peatlands for other purposes other than simply uh, for burning for electricity generation. The redundancies which will happen uh, will mostly by, be by natural wastage, um, but also there will be opportunities for using the peat bogs for other purposes. And I'm thinking in particular of things like uh, renewable energy um, production, which Bordnamona are now getting into increasingly, so that um, other economies will be opening up, other sources of employment will be opening up. And I wouldn't see it as a death knell for the Midlands of Ireland by any means. I think the, the big question now is in terms of whether the biomass that would become available would be uh, domestically produced or imported. And I know that imported biomass uh, is causing problems in many other parts of the world. The, uh, the importing of wood, for example, from the southeastern United States is giving cause for concern to some of the residents there in terms of deforestation. So I think we, we can't simply um, go on thinking we've solved our problem at the expense of creating one elsewhere. I think also that biomass has to be very carefully quantified in terms of its life cycle, in terms of the emissions, the carbon emissions that it totally uh, accounts for. And I would see perhaps biomass being a very short-term solution in this case for Bordenomona, with the longer-term solution being much more um, a move to renewable energy. Um, farmers, of course, have had their fingers burned a bit with um, miscanthus, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, and uh, I think they're going to be very uh, cautious about getting into large-scale willow production, for example, which would be the other alternative I would see for, for biomass production. But uh, I think above all, we don't want to start destroying our 
forest cover or tree cover simply to keep burning in a power station when there are other alternatives for electrical energy uh, to be used in the years ahead. So um, again, I think it's, it's, it's a short-term solution. Um, it may be for a few years, but I think we have to look beyond that. Professor Sweeney said that it is important to have a vibrant rural sector and noted that the reform of the common agricultural policy will be crucial. He highlighted the importance of rural development in Pillar 2 of CAP, such as the Leader and Gloss schemes. But could biomass burning be an answer to Ireland's carbon reduction efforts in the short term? We caught up with Pat Farley of Farley Brothers Agricultural Contractors, who has been growing willow since 2006. We asked him why he invested in willow and what challenges he encountered. We um, probably planted somewhere between two and 3,000 acres of willow all over Ireland. Some of the land was suitable, and some of it wasn't. We were <clears throat> given a lot of bad advice early on about what we should do, what way we should plant it, how we, you know, it needed no fertilizer. As regards the yields, we were given wrong figures for this country. Maybe they worked better in other countries, I don't know. You'd probably be lucky to get seven ton off a, an acre a year. And, uh, the price that's been paid for willow at the minute is not enough. A lot of the farmers can't make money on it. And um, it's just not a good place to be at the minute. We're not actively promoting willow because there's no money in it for farmers. We asked Pat if he believes, given his experience, that it would be possible for Ireland to produce large-scale supplies of willow. To which he said he does, if support is given. We need to get up to probably 50,000 hectares of willow, which is a big ask. Uh, we need a lot of government support. We need it to be rolled out on a basis something like forestry, where it's a 100% establishment grant and where they get a premium every year for probably the first 15 years. And maybe exclude the year where they have a harvest that they don't get paid. But in order to roll this out, with any bit of effect at all, it needs to be something on that scale. It needs to be incentivized the same way as forestry, and it also needs to be tax-free. The farmers, I feel, need to get some kind of compensation for carbon credits and should be able to charge whoever wants them, you know, that they can sell the carbon credit to whatever company wants it. We asked if willow requires good land to grow or whether poorer land could be used. I suppose it's like good trees. It takes good land to grow good trees and it's the very same for willow as it is for any other crop. Uh, <clears throat> it will grow on marginal land, but not as good. Pat was asked what sort of returns he had hoped to make and whether these had been achieved. Well, we were hoping to get a decent return that everybody would have a few pound out of it. You know, the contractor needs money and the farmer needs money. And the people who are buying the willow need to be able to make money on it as well, you know, for producing energy. Uh, I suppose another thing that needs to be looked at is the contractors who are doing all the work need more assistance with the type of machinery that's needed to plant the willow, to cut the willow and maybe to inject sludge into the ground. We put a lot of investment in and we give it a fair shot there for 10 years and uh, it's just we weren't getting any help. We have no bother in doing it. We know we're able to do it. 
but we need a bit of help. Firstly, just to point out that we did invite a representative from Bordemona to join our discussion, but they declined. Eamon, Pat illustrates in the VT there how difficult it is to grow willow. If we end up ceasing peat harvesting by 2025, are we potentially looking at increasing our carbon footprint by importing biomass into the country? I don't think we should be using biomass in power generation at all. Uh, it's highly inefficient and there are real environmental risks, not just here at home and the difficulty we've seen with Macanthus and with Willow. Um, and as I say, the volume wood that it would take if we were doing it through forestry plantations, we'd almost have to take our entire forestry system and just feed it into a power plant where two thirds of the energy is wasted, goes up the chimneys, waste heat. Uh, it's not a long-term, it's not a very efficient or economic solution to generating power. And I suppose the other alternative to get the volumes that would be needed is to go out of the country. Bordnemona have been looking at going to Georgia and the States, I think it is, they wanted to buy a wild forest. And, and again, I just think that's not going to work. Um, it's huge energy use and shipping it backwards and forwards. But also the Americans are starting to cotton on. That's what's happening. Their native wild forest has been chopped down to feed power stations in Europe. They're up in arms about it. It's not going to be viable. So I think we need to switch away from use of biomass in power generation. We can use it for a certain very specific uses in heat, particularly in the food industry, in very advanced combined heat and power stations where it's highly efficient. Yes, there may be a need for it. But in big power stations, where, as I said, two thirds of the wood is wasted as waste heat going up a chimney, I don't think that is sustainable in, in any way. So, Eamon, you wouldn't support peat as a form of, of uh, fuel for firing the power stations, but as the alternative now, board and look at biomass, and you also don't think that's, no. that's a good it's, move? It, it's, it's, um, there's real environmental concerns. I mean, currently they're already in Eden Dairy mixing in pine kernels. But again, from an environmental, from a global perspective, that pine kernels, are, they're coming from Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, where there's huge concern about the change of land use to provide these biomass <coughs> materials. It's not sustainable. We have alternatives that are far more economic in terms of generating power. There's a huge opportunity, I think, need for us to switch in, and to create investment in Bordemona in renewable alternatives in other business enterprises that the company should lead on. But burning biomass to generate electricity is not efficient. It's not sustainable. It's going to do real harm to our national image, not just meeting the climate targets or not. Uh, increasingly, we'll be seen as environmental pariahs if we pursue an approach that is actually destroying nature rather than protecting it. So what's the alternative then? Well, I think the investment... For those as, power plants, for uh, those power plants. Well, I think one of the things you'd have to do uh, with those power plants is use the grid connection to which board and are looking at doing now for the likes of solar, far, solar farms, the likes of wind power, uh, and to use what's the asset, the real, the real assets is that grid connection. Uh, I don't believe that the power plants have a future, unfortunately. Um, we have to make sure that there's employment and that the company starts to thrive and that the Midlands start to thrive. But doing it on back of maintaining inefficient, expensive and unsustainable power plants isn't the way to go. Michael, I'll bring you in there. The power plants don't have a future, Eamon says, and he doesn't see a likelihood on the biomass side either as a possibility to, to co-fire at them. Well, as you as you are aware, Claire, over the last probably the last year, um, I've been to the I've been to the fore in saying 
that um, first of it's uneconomical uh, growing biomass in this country. We know that there's 3,000 acres being grown at the moment. Um, we are aware that I think there's like something like 500 acres after being put back into agricultural land for the simple reasons. The economics don't stack up. That's the, the simple facts about it. Um, how anybody could come to the conclusion that bringing um, palm kernels or bringing biomass from Australia or all these different countries we hear about um, and basically cutting it there, chipping it there, bringing it to, using it in a, or, uh, a factory there, uh, getting it on a, a lorry to bring it to a port, bringing it to Ireland. How anyone could actually envisage that you'd be uh, doing good for the world, um, I, I think establish the need to people that's thinking that way because it doesn't stack up, to be quite blunt about it. Where do we go? Um, the reality of it is, is that uh, because of the movements last week and the announcements, um, we are now sort of bounced five years sooner than what Bordemona was uh, envisaged where it was going. What are the solutions? Uh, next year, we are going to be a million tons of less of peat, obviously. That's what they have agreed on. And uh, what's going to replace it? So we haven't a magic wand that's going to replace it overnight. We are in trouble in the line of the biomass because that's what the focus has been on, even though it was pointed out. Um, I would differ with Eamon in saying that um, regardless of what different alternative we go to, um, the problem is that it has to be subsidized and subsidized heavy. And I do have a problem with the wind energy sector where Look, there's an awful lot of the wind energy sector at the, at the moment, unfortunately, is owned by Japanese business people. And we are looking, no more than when you look at your phone at the moment or broadband and all these other things that Ireland had control of their own destiny at one stage, we have now no control over even a lot of the different alternatives that's out there that people are looking at. And we are displacing um, five years sooner than, than it was envisaged. And I, would, and I still urge Bordemona that in the rehabilitation of those bogs, that there sh they shouldn't be laying off um, those ex expert machine people who have worked on those bogs for years. I think there's a rehabilitation that they can be doing. But on top of that, what we are doing, as well as talking about bringing biomass from all these different countries, we have a lot of those people working on board Nimona that everybody knows are part-time farmers that won't survive on the farm. That's the reality of it. For years, people, knew this was coming, but there was no decisions made on how we are going to make sure they will have work. I sat in, in the AV room with Bordnamona officials who said that nobody would be laid off, this is a few years ago, and said how we're going to have alternative jobs. But the alternative jobs are not there. The reality of it is go to Galway Port where they closed down, go to Sligo Port where they closed down their coal operations, now go to the Midlands, and it's the Midlands of an area that struggle for, for employment, unfortunately, that those machine drivers will probably end up, the younger ones of them, going to the likes of Dublin, where there is work on machines um, that they would be used to. What's the carbon footprint of that, as well at the same time of bringing biomass from Australia? It's absolutely nonsensical what we're doing in this country. Eamon, what's your view on that? So we're, if we lose the peat industry out of the Midlands, biomass won't work, according to yourself, to, to fuel the, the power stations. That's going to result in a lot of jobs. There doesn't seem to be um, an alternative, as you're both pointing out, that really you feel is sustainable right now. This is coming down the track. 2025 is not that far away. Are we going to end up pushing people, more people into cars, 
to commute to jobs in urban centres, the likes of Dublin, um, which will lead to an increase in emissions on the transport side. Sorry, can I just, sorry, can I just mm-hmm. give me one there? 2025 is coming down the track. But next March and April is coming down the track quicker, where 150 people are going to be uh, getting redundancies. That's the reality. Can I say, I think rural Ireland will thrive if we go green, in my mind. Uh, and Bordenamona and the Midlands particularly should and will thrive. And I agree with Mike that we should have been planning for this much more aggressively and getting ready for it and, and in investing ahead of it. But firstly, I welcome the fact that Bordenamona are looking at spending, it's two gigawatts, I think it is. That's half of the electricity we're using at the moment in Ireland. That's the scale of investment that they're planning of investing in renewables, in wind and solar. And that will be owned by the Irish people. And I think that's important that we do have ownership of of this amazing power supply we have, where we have a comparative advantage and where now it's increasingly cheap. The price of wind keeps coming down. The price of solar keeps coming down. So we can build that power and it gives us an advantage. And in fact, even on the back of that, we should be looking to put the likes of data centres into the Midlands. That Athenry plant, I, I really regret that didn't go ahead because there you have a very low cost energy supply creating that further jobs in the Midlands. Secondly, I think it's very important that as we restore our bogs and re-wet a lot of them, which can act as a carbon sink, that the communities in the Midlands get paid for that. There's real value now in these bogs in storing carbon. Rather than releasing it into the atmosphere, we can hold it there. And I think it's critical in how we do this, that the money that comes for that, because that has a real value, carbon has a value, that that money, money goes back into the Midlands. And thirdly, critically, I think for the company, one of the huge tasks we have, we have a million houses in this country with oil-fired central heatings. Typically, they're not very well insulated. We need to go into every single one of those houses in the next two, two decades and do three or four things. We need to retrofit them with insulation so that they're really cosy, warm and efficient houses. We need to put solar panels on the roofs. We need to put electric vehicle connection points in and a heat pump so that they're heated with this 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 power supply we have. Now, that's not going to be cheap. We're looking at about 25, 30 plus thousand for each house. But there's an incredible benefit in that your fuel bill vanishes. And I think we can get the financing for that to make it easier for the households to, to, uh, to do it. Who's going to do it? I think Bordenamona are perfectly placed to set up a really big division doing that work. They could employ thousands of workers. It's guaranteed for the next 20 years because we know we have to do it. It's the same skills. It could be very well paid. And I think what we need to be doing now is sitting down with the unions and others in the Midlands to say, OK, let's make this transition work for everyone, but particularly for the workers in that company. And let's plot out how we can use the skills it has in in. Uh, machinery and logistics and actually develop that business. And the truth is at the moment, I was down recently, we talked to the Tipperary Energy Institute, who are very experienced in this. They're saying the biggest obstacle at the moment is they can't get workers. There's actually a real dearth in the Midlands in workers who can do this sort of work, making our homes fit for the future. And I think Bordenamona and the workers in the Midlands improving the houses in the Midlands, not commuting up to Dublin, but actually looking after our own homes. And because it's close to the wind farms, close to the solar farms that we're going to build, they should get cheaper power to run their car, to heat their home. That's the future we should be investing in for, for border moment. But surely some vision like that would take a long time to actually achieve. And as Michael pointed out, you have job losses coming next March and then 
beyond that 400 up to 2025 and then after that um possibly more so that's that's a very extensive vision that you have yeah but between the climate targets we need to do it now the government in their in their plan said by 2021 that's only two years away we'll be doing forty-five thousand houses a year now the truth is we're not even doing 45 a year at the moment what we should have seen in this recent budget was significant money going to board namona to allow them start doing it at scale and to do it in the thousands of houses, not in the tens, fives and tens, which is what's happening at the moment. That needs to be scaled up anyway, because we're so far away from meeting our climate targets. And that's probably the best way we can cut out the, the, the pollution. And I think Bordamona is a perfectly suited company to lead it so that it's state backed, so that you get scale, so you use the skills of the company, particularly the engineering skills that they have to make it happen. Michael, I know you want to come in. Michael, but firstly, just on the possibility of flooding the bogs. Uh, Eamon touched on it there um, and using the bogs as a carbon sink. Are there challenges there in terms of the land around the bogs? Like, will there be an impact there if you flood the bog? Will, will that impact on farmers and on land around the bogs? Well, the first thing you have to do and look at um, in parts of the West, um, there is restoration of bogs being done. But there is an analysis that needs, it's about the three year process, the likes of RPS are doing it at the moment. I know for the national parks, where you have to make sure that the, we would call it the drain between the farmland and the bog, that that's kept open. Um, up on the high bog, uh, yes, there is, um, you can uh, basically close drain for rewetting. Um, the word flooding may be sort of uh, extravagant to, to sort of use the word. It's, it's like rewetting the top of the bog. But yes, there, but also there will be 200 metres to 250 metres on the edge that you won't be able to touch for the simple reason um, there is a danger of farmer's land and, and uh, having an impact on that. Second of all, things, a few things I want to um, uh, talk about here. In the line of, um, when we talk about emissions, um, in Ireland, when you look at Ireland's total emissions, Bordemona weren't part of that. They were buying, the, the ESB had to buy for all the peat. They had to buy uh, carbon credits on the markets last few years. That's the first thing. So when we talk about reducing our emissions, unfortunately, that's not going to be part of it. The second part is that when you talk about renewables um, in the line of wind and in the line of solar, well, just to correct the record, um, there is a lot of uh, wind turbine operations in the west of Ireland that Quilch is one that went into it, Bordemona have gone into it, and within three to four years, they have sold part of that business off. And that is fact. It's not that we own it. It is sold to foreign entities. So they that will be having the money out of it, they that are going to be getting the subsidies out of it, that's the facts. If you look at it, I think it's something like 60% of our wind business at the moment is sold or is owned by people out of this country. On top of that, when you look at, and Eamon has talked about different ideas there of creating employment. Um, when we go into the doll and we have budgets, we don't have a pot of money to give this, this and this. Unfortunately, it would be great if we had. But the reality of it is, there are a lot of people, and when you talk about um, making better homes, uh, and especially the older homes, at the moment, if you have a home that's, that was built in 2006 or seven, you don't qualify for anything. That's the first thing. Um, I actually talked to a person on my way up here this morning. Second of all, um, you need money. And this is what people need to get into their head. If you were an old age pensioner, if you were someone living in parts of rural Ireland 
in, in, in a lot of disadvantaged areas and claw areas, in reds areas, you were talking about the average income for farmers in that around 18,000 a year. Um, to do a lot of the lovely things that Eamon has talked about, it would be agreed by everyone that you need 30 to 40,000. So you need 20,000 of a block of money along with the grant you get. So where is this going to come out of? No government is, like young people at the moment are trying to get mortgages for houses. They're being refused. I see them building houses down the country. It would be lovely to be able to go for them people for all these other alternatives. But the mortgage they're getting, they have to dance according to it and build what they can afford. And we, are going, we, we will never solve the problem unless we have a realistic system of basically uh, electricity. And in my opinion, I, I, and Eamon, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the stats that I have is that the last four hours, the last five years have been the worst um, in wind generation. I'm not talking about in overall generation. I'm talking about in the volumes of wind. Second of all, this year has been the second worst in history. We, can, we need security of fuel in this country. We are now in danger. Next year, there's a million tons gone. The following year, there's a million tons gone. Where are we going to just for the next 10 years, and I've pointed this out over the last number of days, where are we going with making sure we have fuel security and making sure that we're not going to hit a bang? So and and the, other, the other thing, the other thing, we're, about I, I, in my opinion, we, have, we are walking, sleepwalking into something. We are now this year at peak in the gas um, in, in, in Belmullet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in 2025, it is envisaged that's gone. And we, are, we have some assets that's actually going to be gone by that. And we still don't know where we're going. We don't have a vision of what we're doing. And being honest about it, if Ireland, if we want to talk about this whole carbon situation in Ireland, and indeed the world, um, we, where we are here now, you could throw a stone over to the airport. No one is talking about the amount of emissions planes are putting up. Are we, why don't we talk about the same as some of these people want to get rid of all the livestock in Ireland and cut down on this, that, and other? Why aren't we talking about getting rid of planes? Ground them if we need to. Don't be going on your holidays if that's the case, if we're doing so much damage. Eamon, there is a view out there that the um, pressure that is coming on to certain, the rural, more indigenous sectors, the likes of agriculture, the likes of the peat sector, that it's being driven kind of by urban-centric views. There is that view out there and that <coughs> plays into that urban-rural divide. Um, what do you make of that argument? Do you think that the people that are making these plans that are involved in these policies have a meaningful understanding and appreciation for rural industries and rural life and the importance of them and that you can't just displace people from certain industries who are used to even, the, like you mentioned, the manual labour working outdoors and then building you know, pharmaceutical factories or different plants or data centres and bringing people who have that kind of work ethic in their in their blood and bringing them into a new sector where back, it's not... Go back to what I was saying earlier on, I think going green is going to be good for Ireland. And, and he's absolutely right. We have to do it in urban areas as well as it's not any one section. Every section of society and every country is going to have to play its part. But for rural Ireland, this is an opportunity because the current... Rural Ireland will make its living, in my mind, in four key sectors. Firstly, in energy, 
the resources actually exist stronger in rural Ireland. The wind is stronger and it's still there. While it varies year to year, we're still probably the windiest country in the world. We have a real advantage over other countries. But also in terms of putting up solar power, like farmers have the opportunity on barns, uh, on in solar farms to do this in a way you can't do it in an urban area. And rural Ireland would also benefit from the electric vehicles because it's much easier in a, a house in the country to connect in than it is in a street in Dublin where it's very hard to get a charging point. But so, so the energy future is going to divert money to rural Ireland. And it's actually, and it's, it's, it's our resource. It's not paying to Russia or to Saudi Arabia, which is what we're doing at the moment. We're sending our money overseas to buy our energy. Instead, it'll be having our own energy here. But secondly, food. I mean, the current food system needs to change. It's not serving Irish farmers. Like, I mean, 130 Irish far- Irish farmers, it's about 15,000 are earning an income. 115,000 are below poverty levels under the current system. Now, we need to change that system where we value the work that farmers are going to do. They're going to be the frontline key people in adapting to climate change and helping us mitigate against it. And, and, And that means paying farmers better for food, but also for storing carbon, also for protecting wildlife, uh, also for, for, for managing floodwaters, also for p- providing access. And if you look at the new common agricultural policy, that's what it's all about. It's saying pay your farmers for the environmental services that they're providing. They're the heroes in this type of game we have to do. Thirdly, though, just two other points. Um, we will make our money in rural Ireland from tourism. We know this already. It's already happening. I know I worked in tourism, bringing people to the most rural parts of Ireland for 15 years. They want people coming here, want to connect to a landscape that is truly green and is beautiful. And so for rural Ireland, that is a key benefit. Lastly, and go back to that data centres issue, we do need to provide the rural broadband to make sure that we can get digital services because... We have an advantage potentially in rural Ireland down the line. If you can get that sort of uh, digital connectivity, that it's not costing two or three thousand euros a month, which is costing at the moment in Dublin to rent an apartment. You have the potential to live in a place where housing is more economic and you can still connect to the Internet. So those four legs of the stool are the future of rural Ireland. And they all, in my mind, benefit from us being being green and efficient in everything that we do. We do. Michael, we have just a few things there. Being honest about it, Eamon, and for anybody that put um, the solar panels for even heating the water in the houses, it's like a 10-year plan ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Um, solar panels haven't proved themselves yet. We have to live in realistic terms. Um, wind, there is problems with wind in the countryside as well, because people don't want wind turbines looking at when they look out their back door, simple as that, and they will be objected to, and that's it. On top of that, whether we like it or whether we don't, if we're going down this world that you talk about, Eamon, and many others talk about, Electricity prices will have to go up by probably nine cents per unit, and that's and and that's being realistic. In in now, can we work? Can we afford that? We know that at the moment that coal is the cheapest form you can of electricity. Okay, no. well that, that's the fact. So it, yeah. it's way cheaper than any of the other products that you talk about, um, and and gas is cheap. Nuclear is the cheapest of all, but we're not going to go down that road. Um, second of all, for manufacturing companies in this country, if you want to keep the jobs, and have a look at the likes of Mayo, we have great success with the likes of McHale's and Major and all these different companies, who need to be competitive at what they're doing. Say, you're correct in saying we need the broadband infrastructure, but if we go down the road of basically farmers just um, having a nice raised bog to look in it, a nice field 
to looking at managing the flood water, well, they may as well live in Dublin because you'll have a desolate, uh, abandoned rural Ireland. All you will have in it, in, your, in, the, in what you're talking about, is wind turbines. And we have to watch as well that if the rock off, when we, if, we go to, if we go to 80% or 90% in wind energy, we have to watch the rock off, which will cost near a billion to make sure the generators can accept that because obviously wind is variable up and down. We haven't planned where we're going. We are in a maze for the next 10 years. Yes, things will come along. In the line of electric cars, there's a big question mark out there. Where is the batteries going to be disposed of? How long will it take before they're actually carbon neutral? Some are saying up to 10 years. I don't know, but there's questions out there that we have decided that we're going to plunge headfirst into the sea without knowing how to swim, and there's going to be consequences over the next 10 years because we haven't a sort of a level plan brought going forward. I'm going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Eamon, I know you want to come in, but we're out of time. Uh, thank you both very much for, for coming in to us. Next up, uh, Niall Claffey visited a farmer in County, County Leash who's preparing for the winter ahead. Pat and Porrick Spencer, a father and son team, milk a herd of predominantly British region cows in Cullahill, County Leash. The Spencers operate a spring cabin system alongside beef and contracting enterprises. After a difficult summer, where both silage and meal were fed to bridge the gap, Pork is back on track with his grazing system. We're milking about 53 cows here at the minute. There's about 50 acres of platform between grazing here at home and 14 acres up the road that we zero graze and bring down and leave the cows in at night time at the minute. We have a 60 unit milking parlour there and we're hoping to extend it to speed up the milking process a bit. Attention is slowly turning to the dry period in many farms throughout the country. However, Farmers have welcomed the good weather during the back end of this year, which is helping to recruit some of the additional costs that this summer presented. A dry period of approximately 60 days is recommended for spring calving cows. A longer dry period is usually required for cows in poor condition at dry off to ensure that they calve at the optimal condition score for the following lactation. Pork is happy with the condition of his cows and will continue milking into next month. Thinner ones are probably a shake a meal to try to bring them on a bit, but no, they're generally not too bad anyways it is so. Earlier today, Animal Health Ireland, in conjunction with Chagas, held a cell check event on the Spencer's farm where best practice in drying off cows was outlined. The steps taken by farmers when drying off cows can have a significant impact on mastitis levels during the dry period and also during the following lactation. The level of hygiene when cows are dried off and in the time afterwards influence the rate of new infections. Milk cows probably for a week, once a day, a week for a week before we dry them off and probably a bale of hay or whatever to wind them down a bit. And then we'll dry them all off, having the one shot, and they'll go off for maybe two, three weeks and graze off a few fields up the road or, and try to save a bit of silage here. While Park fed silage and meal during the summer months, he was able to build up enough fodder supplies for the winter period ahead. However, Park is hoping to continue grazing and have all his cows dried off by the 1st of December. We got an okay order out now. We didn't use too much of it, so we, we got lucky enough. We stretched it with, with meal there and everything, so we should have enough for the winter, hopefully. Uh, it'll be the end of November, probably the last week of November. We'll, we'll have them dry for the 1st of December anyway. Plenty of grass there away, so we'll keep them out hold for another fortnight or three weeks till we dry them off. Hopefully have enough for it anyway. Tom O'Dwyer, the Head of Dairy Knowledge Transfer at Chagas Moor Park, joins us now. Tom, can you start off by outlining the importance of drying off? So the drying off process is a very important process that takes place at the end of a lactation. And um, it's important for two reasons. Uh, number one, it, 
it defines the, <clears throat> the end of the lactation. So it's a, a stop point. And, and by, by, kind of, by putting in place the process, then the farmer allows a couple of things to happen. Number one, he allows the, the other uh, to repair itself after the lactation just ending and allows the other then to prepare itself for the, for the coming lactation. So that, that dry period of about eight weeks, um, you know, 60 days is what's recommended. Um, that, that allows the, the other to repair after the last lactation and to get ready for the next lactation. I suppose at the moment, Tom, the weather is good, grass conditions mm. are holding up. Some farmers out there might be tempted to milk on. Mm. What kind of advice would you give in that scenario? Uh, well, it's, it's early November now. Um, people talking about milking on, if they milk, you know, to 15 to 20 to November, I, I, I don't see any problem with that um, because cows calving in, in late January, early February, if they're dry towards the end of November, they've still got December and January. They've got that 60 days dry period. Okay, so in, in my mind, you know, it, it really only becomes an issue if farmers decide to, to milk on cows that are going to calf in early February, if they're milking them on to the middle of December, right up to Christmas. And then you're shortening the dry cow period and you're not giving the cows other that, that chance to, um, to repair and get ready for the next lactation. Uh, more generally then for, for, um, for uh, farmers that are considering milking on, for sure, um, cows calving in um, March into April. Yeah, you know, if you want to milk them on over Christmas and into the new year, provided you have uh, adequate feed and, you know, quality silage and, and you know, you're, you're willing to um, the, the work, the extra work involved, you're willing to put in the extra work. Um, I, I don't see a problem with it. The margins are going to be small um, because ultimately the extra money you'll bring in for the milk sales, you're going to give back a lot of that in, in, in terms of, of additional feed to, to keep the cow milking. So the margin is going to be small if farmers want to do it fine, um, but just choose the cows that, that you're going to do it with and, and don't compromise the dry cow period. So what is best practice then in terms of drying off procedures? So the drying off procedure itself um, can really be, be, be split down in, into a couple of, 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 of segments. So you have before the drying off day or event itself, the drying off event itself, and then afterwards. So they're the, the three pieces. And, and really, um, there, there, there's... there's um, uh, Preparation is key to, to all three, and hygiene is very, very important for the second piece, particularly the, the actual dry-off event itself. So in terms of preparation, what should farmers be doing now? Um, ideally, um, but, but we know it's, it's not the case, but, but ideally farmers should have milk recorded their cows during the lactation, and they should have information on individual cows to know which cows um, have um, some infection and which cows uh, have, have not got an infection within their herd. Um, then they should also, I suppose, be doing um, a culture, so taking a sample of milk from some number of cows and, and getting that cultured in a laboratory to find out which bugs are actually causing uh, the mastitis infection. So then they can choose the appropriate uh, antibiotic to treat it at drying off. Um, and also they should, um, having, having got those two pieces of information, they should sit down with their, with their veterinary practitioner and talk about what is the best uh, veterinary product to use at drying off. And they also then, I suppose, in terms of preparation, they need to decide whether they're going to use blanket dry cow treatment, in other words, treat all cows with antibiotic at drying off, or whether they're going to use a selective dry cow treatment, in other words, treat a proportion of the herd or, um, at drying off with antibiotics, and the other um, would just get a teeth sealer. So there are some of the decisions that have to be thought about in advance. Um, on, the, on the day itself, um, you know, hygiene is, is highly important, and the other thing I'd mention is help. 
Um, you know, it, it, there's a lot, a lot of work goes into this uh, to, to, to get it done right. Um, and with larger herd sizes, you know, one farmer taking on to dry off a large number of cows on a morning, you know, there's a lot of work. So there, help, help could be needed. Hy- hygiene is also very important. So on the hygiene side, what are some of the protocols there, Tom? Mm. So um, wh- what we're recommending is um, ideally, again, that farmers would... Um, clip the cow's tails maybe two to three weeks in advance of drying off so, so that, you know, the risk of additional uh, dirt fa- falling onto the teats um, is, is reduced. Um, also, the, having the, the milking stand, having that cleaned and hosed down prior to the drying off event. I'd also recommend that you identify your cows for drying off um, at the morning milking. You draft them out uh, after milked in the, uh, in the morning you've decided to dry them off. And um, get, get, get the milking stand and get all your... Um, dry cow tubes and tubes and all the other equipment that you need, get all that ready. And then maybe go and have a cup of tea, you know, um, because, you know, you'll have more energy if if you take a little break between milking and and drying off. Have your help um, available. Um, The the procedure then itself is extremely important that um, the teat end is clean. Um, The only way that bacteria can get into the udder is through the teat end. Um, and if, if the teat end isn't clean, there's a risk that you, you are going to push dirt up in front of the, the tube when, when you're administering the, the antibiotic uh, in, into, the, into the other. So a uh, piece of cotton wool uh, uh, dipped in methylated spirits and clean the, the, the teat end for 10 seconds. And you, you have a look then at the, at the cotton wool. If it's dirty, you, you should repeat the process and, and it, it should then be clean um, on the second go. But that, that's, that's, you know, that's what we mean by hygiene. It, it takes cotton wool, methylated spirits, and it takes time. And what sort of feeding options should farmers consider in the, in the run-up to mm. and, and following drying off yes. in order to get the best results now next yeah. spring? So um, ideally what we want to try and do, uh, we want to identify cows that are um, low, um, you know, uh, n- not milking well, so that they're near, near the end of their lactation anyway. And our, our guideline figure within Chagas is cows um, milking eight to 10 liters per day. And once they're at that sort of a level of milk yield, they'll, they'll dry off more easily than a cow that's milking 12, 13, 14, 15 liters of milk per day. So if, if you have that kind of information, that's very helpful. Um, secondly, then you want to try and reduce the plane of nutrition for the, the milking cow in the run-up to the dry-off event. So if farmers have got cows on grass and maybe they're feeding three to four or five kilos a meal with grass, or if they're indoors and they're getting meal and silage, drop down the, the meal feeding levels for the couple of days in the run-up to dry-off. And, and that'll, that'll lower the, the milk production level and it'll make it easier then for the cow to, to dry off. You mentioned earlier about farmers milking more cows at the mm. moment. And obviously that leads to, to multiples of everything, mm. multiples of teeth, multiples of tubes. Um, and we all we know that the labor issue, particularly on mm. the dairy side, is quite is is quite serious at mm. the moment. Um, what are the risks involved with not taking your time with rushing through the process? Okay, so speaking to some colleagues of mine within Chagas, they're you know they're telling me that they're picking up on, on individual farmers next spring, when cows start to, to milk again, the next lactation, that um, there's a higher than, sorry, there's a lower than expected cure rate. So cows that were high, high somatic cell count in this lactation uh, are still high in the next lactation. So the, 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 the infection hasn't been cured. And also there's, um, sorry, that's, that's a, uh, sorry, a lower than, a lower than um, ideal um, 
cure rate and a higher than ideal uh, new infection rate. So there's new, new infections being picked up. So there, there's two things happening. The, the dry cow treatment isn't curing the infections that were there in, in, the, in the lactation just finishing. And also uh, we're seeing that um, new infections are being picked up. Uh, and you'll notice that if, if you are milk recording and you're looking at your cell check um, report uh, early next year, you'll, you'll see those figures and you can talk to an advisor or a vet about those if, if you have concerns. Um, so, so the risk is that if the job isn't done right, you don't get the results that, that, that can be delivered. At the moment, Animal Health Ireland are carrying out a number of cell mm. check events with Chagas also and a number of stakeholders. Uh, what's turnout been like at the events so far? So Chagas GHI, a number of milk processors uh, got, got together and uh, decided to run a number of, of events around uh, dry cow management. Also to highlight selective dry cow therapy because it is, it is an issue that, that's... Um, coming at us, I suppose you could say. Um, attendance has, has been variable, um, overall probably a little bit on the low side. Um, and, you know, I suppose some, some of us are, are scratching our heads and wonder perhaps maybe that farmers feel that they know what needs to be known about dry cow therapy, and perhaps they're right. But I, I think the new piece on this is, is the selective dry cow therapy and, and the, you know, how you can implement that across your herd. That, that's the new piece at, at these events this autumn. So when you mentioned there about the kind of low turnout and wondering mm. why, is there is there concern there that there might be a reluctance um, among farmers who kind of maybe set in their ways on, on how to do this, that they know how to do mm. it? Yeah. Well, a, a colleague of mine says, and, and I, I probably fall into the same, same category, that he has spent the first half of his career uh, as an advisor advising farmers to, bl- to blanket treat a cows at, at drying off with, with an antibiotic as, as a good practice. And, and that... That message has been extremely successful in, in the sense that it's a practice that has been widely adopted. Um, and, and change, you know, whether, whether it's around this technology or around any other technology involved in farming, change is, is slow and is difficult. Um, you know, I'm used to doing it this way. It has given me good results. Why would I change? So there's a process of education of, of farmers around uh, uh, the issues around antimicrobial resistance, and I suppose the role that farmers can play in trying to mitigate or reduce uh, the risk of antimicrobial resistance. And blanket dry cow therapy is, I suppose, is, is one area that dairy farmers, I think, have to begin to look at. Um, I, and I think over time, you know, we're going to see more farmers moving in that direction. So and ultimately, then what, what are the benefits well, ultimately, the benefits of uh, selective dry cow therapy is that there's less antibiotics used. So there's a benefit to the farmer in terms of less cost. Um, there's a benefit to the consumer because less antibiotics used means that there's a, a reduced risk of antimicrobial resistance developing uh, over time. Um, and, and there's also a higher quality product because we, we, we can put in place practices that will, will achieve the same end result. Okay, and, and what's being questioned is, is the use of antibiotics in, in a kind of a preventative fashion, you know, kind of just in case. Um, and, you know, it, it has been the, the advice that, that has been shared with farmers and the practice that has been encouraged. But the thinking around it uh, as a result of, of research and, uh, and findings um, is changing. So, um, you know, some farmers are already dipping their toes in the water uh, in regards to selective dry cow therapy. And that would be my advice that farmers um, 
you know, consider this and, and think about it. Particularly herds that are already milk recording and have information on individual cows, it, you, just, you, you do not try selective dry cow therapy without individual cow information. It's just not a runner. Um, so um, for farms that are milk recording, there is the potential to um, adopt a selective dry cow therapy approach. But I mentioned hygiene earlier in, in the interview or the discussion, Claire. And while I stress that hygiene is important at drying off, it becomes doubly important uh, when you go with selective dry cow therapy because for the portion of the cows that you, you identify to dry off just with a teat sealer, you have no antibiotic to cure an infection that may develop over the dry cow period. So if, 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 if you don't um, adequately clean the teat end, there's a risk of pushing infection into the other, as I already said, and, and now you're just going to put in a teat sealer to seal the teat and you have no antibiotic in, in the other to, to, um, to cure any infection that develops. So the infection develops and, and it's there when you start milking next lactation. So hygiene is even more important if, if, if you're selectively drying, um, using selective dry cow therapy. We'll leave it there, Tom. Thanks very much for joining us. And thanks indeed to all our guests and to our sponsors, Homeland. If you want to get in touch with the Farmland or Agriland teams, you can call or email us or reach out to us on our social media channels. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week.